you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So as we read and as we've seen so far in our short time of Mark, Mark is straight to the point, right? Jesus' ministry is beginning and the disciples have begun. Uh, They've been called to follow Jesus. And right here in chapter 1, we get really our first glimpse of Jesus and his authoritative ministry. And what do we mean? Like this, this word is used a lot in the Gospels. We, it's used a lot in our culture. Authority is used a lot. What do we mean when we say Jesus has authority? What is meant by uh, this authority that people are associating with him? Uh, verse 21 says this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, Why were they astonished? For he taught them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. So there's something about this experience um, that people are experiencing. There's something about the location, the posture, uh, and the content of what Jesus is saying that expresses to people that he's doing what he's doing with authority, right? First, he's teaching in a synagogue, which is... Uh, the word there is synagogue. It just means assembly of God's people. So he has this, this venue of authority. There's a measure of authority. This is, this is similar to me standing right here at this pulpit, right? I'm standing here with a measure of authority. The difference is the authority that I have is really granted in part by you, the congregation, who have ordained me and keep me as an elder um, who is deemed able to teach. And not because of my skill, but mainly because of my character. You have given me authority. So thank you for giving me and sustaining me an authority to be up here. Thank you that you have said, yes, this guy can teach us. But Jesus is teaching with authority. And the scribes, the people working in the synagogue themselves are saying, where did this guy get his authority? Where does Jesus derive his authority? They want to know who taught him. Where does he get his confidence in the way he's speaking and the content with which he's preaching. We know uh, from other accounts that Jesus is preaching not only in an authoritative posture, he's not only saying things with confidence and, and truth, and he's saying them as if they are true because they are. He's not only saying them with, with confidence in places of authority, but he's also preaching an authoritative message. What he's saying, the content of what he's saying is in itself authoritative. Right? He's proclaiming things like, Forgiveness of sins. He's proclaiming things like the arrival of God's kingdom within himself. He's not only interpreting the Old Testament, he's prophesying about the fulfillment of the Old Testament in himself. So we know on our side of things, having, having been granted the word of God and this side of history, we know that Jesus does this because he is God. He's been given authority by the Father as the Son to say the things he says in the places he says them with the posture that he says them. We know that, but they didn't know that. They didn't know that Jesus is the Son of God um, and that he's been sent to proclaim God or himself. And we know that Jesus has come to fulfill an earthly mission uh, a mission of living, teaching, healing, and dying, and resurrecting. <coughs> Excuse me. 
We know this now, but all the humans in the synagogue, all the scribes and the disciples and everything, all of them around Jesus at this point in the narrative do not know that Jesus is God and the Son of God, and they do not know what he has come to do. And even if they had been told at this point, they certainly don't understand. We get multiple points from the disciples' perspectives that they just don't grasp the fullness of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But the very next scene, we find somebody in the room does know who Jesus is. And it's not somebody that we want to know this necessarily. It's a jarring scene. I want you to tap into your imagination and envision the reality of this scene in the synagogue. Verse 23, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and the man cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, us being the demons? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebukes him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulses in him and cries out with a loud voice, and it comes out of the man. Um, let's think about the content of what the Jesus is saying, or what the demon is saying here. He asks this question, what have you to do with us, Jesus? What do you, Jesus, have to do with us? It, it's an odd thought because by all indication, the demon seems to know exactly what Jesus has to do with him. The demon knows that he's in the presence of his enemy. The demons know the power of God, and this one knows exactly who is teaching. He, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the formality is in a way, it feels like mockery almost. What have you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And then the second question is an interesting one as well. He asks Jesus, have you, have you come to destroy us? It's almost as if the demon expects destruction um, and pairing it with what have you to do with us, I think we can figure out that something else is going on here. The demon knows that there is a time that Jesus, the Holy One of God, will destroy the demons. Like we know and believe that spiritual warfare exists. We know and believe that there are real demons in the world that wage war against the believers, the church. Uh, Ephesians 6.11 says this, in warning, put on the whole armor of God that why? That you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the answer to the demon's question, have you come to destroy us, is yes, but not yet. The reality is Jesus did not come to earth some 2,000 years ago, to destroy the demons fully. He did not come to finish the fight and deal the final victory blow to the kingdom of darkness or Satan and his kingdom. Jesus came for another purpose that first time, which we'll get to, but the reality is he still doesn't lack any measure of authority over the demon, and the demon knows this, right? Jesus immediately tells the demon to do one thing, and the demon immediately has to do it. There's no question of who has the power here. And make no mistake, the demons will be destroyed. This demon knows that he will be destroyed. The spiritual warfare battle that rages even now on earth has an ending, and the victor is Jesus of Nazareth. It is Jesus himself. And that victory began 2,000 years ago. 
It's a sure victory, but it's not a realized victory yet. And that, this might be a little confusing, but we are faced with this often as Christians, right? This tension between what Jesus did when he came to earth 2,000 years ago by living and dying and raising, and what he will do, what he will complete in the end of all things, right? This, this tension that Jesus did die for, in our place for our sin, and belief in him means we're adopted into his salvation, into his family, and free to walk from sin, but the reality that we still sin. The reality that that's not complete in us. We're being made into the image of Christ, yet death and suffering and decay and sin are all still part of our world. Well, similarly, Jesus goes to earth. He speaks authoritatively. He commands the demons and the humans alike, uh, and he dies, and he dies over sin and death and rises in victory and now sits in authority over the demons And he has promised their destruction, but spiritual warfare still exists. We still believe in demonic activity in our world, and we see the effects all the time, even if we have trouble, like I do, have trouble pinpointing that it's actually spiritual warfare that's going on. We need to actually kind of, and I say this as a congregation and being totally among the congregation, we need to grow in our ability and ask the Lord to grow in our ability to identify what is, what is spiritual warfare going on in our neighborhood, in our city, in our lives. We just have trouble pinpointing that, especially in the West. So this demon is thinking, um, I, the demon, know who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God, and I know he is coming to destroy us, but this is too early. What do you have to do with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us ahead of your time? This is our world. And Jesus is going to say, it's not your world. It's not your world. And your destruction is coming. And Jesus is labeled by the demon as the Holy One of God, which is true. But it's right at that moment where Jesus rebukes the demon. He exercises authority over the evil spirit. He draws him out of the man with convulsion and crying. Which is weird because the demon had said some, some mocking things before, but when, when the demon labels Jesus as the Holy One of God, that's when Jesus responds with rebuke. This interaction is the first of many interactions which make up uh, a phenomenon in the gospel which is called the, mes- the messianic secret. The messianic secret. It's this idea that Jesus seems to be concerned with the news about who he is spreading. Right? He's, it, it seems like Jesus, every time early in all the gospels, anytime somebody labels him as the Son of God or the Holy One of God or the Messiah or the Savior, he's concerned with making that a secret. So this demon says this, here you are, Holy One of God, and then Jesus says, silent. As we continue through Mark, I want you to keep an eye out and underline or highlight areas where Jesus seems to guard the secret of who he is. And exploring this secret gets to the root of what Jesus' real mission on earth is. Remember, he's not there to just cast out demons into destruction, teach about himself, and then leave. He's got a mission. His mission is to be crucified, to come and die because sin demands death, just not his. It demands our death. God knows this. And so out of the wellspring of his love, the son comes to earth with a mission to die to take the sin of the world onto himself. 
This is no secret to us, but to those around Jesus in his early ministry, uh, Jesus is concerned that they will get the full truth and full understanding too quickly. Why is this a secret? Well, Mark, we're going to continue to see the swelling crowds around Jesus. The astonishment of the disciples will be on display. The voices of demons will respond to his teaching and ministry. The shock of the scribes and Pharisees at what he's saying and how he's saying it. And especially in Mark, but in all the Gospels, we're going to get told time and time again that they just don't really get it. The disciples just the followers of Jesus, everybody around Jesus just doesn't really understand what's going on here. And it's, it's not because the message isn't simple enough, it's simply because they just can't comprehend it. They're not ready to hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows they're like children, and they need to grow up into maturity into this truth. They need to awaken to this news. It's just too much to comprehend, it's too much to understand. And we who are believers, we, we should understand this to a level, right? Because the gospel is really too wonderful for us to understand at first. As simple as a presentation of who God is and what he has done to save us can be, as simply as that presentation can be delivered, just receiving the presentation, the gospel, is typically not enough to make somebody a Christian. We need more. We need, what do we need? We need the Holy Spirit to awaken us to the truth of the gospel. We need the Spirit to spoon-feed us the truth of the gospel. Why? Because nobody will just hear the presentation and that will be alone. They need to know that they're sinful. They need to feel that they need to be saved. They need to feel and know and understand the need of a Savior, and then they can feel and know and understand the freedom and the rest that comes when we submit to being saved. And that's not enough either. We actually need to be reminded again and again and again, explain to me the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. We're like kids to our parents, right? Tell me the story again. Tell me the story again. Tell me the story again. We need the Father. We need the Word. We need the community. We need the, the fellowship of believers to tell us again and again and again, you're saved. We need the good news. We need to dwell in his word and study and pray and journal and read and listen and ask and pray again. We need the complexity and brilliance and truth and simplicity of the gospel to root deeper and deeper and deeper within us. And if we avoid those disciplines or at least dwelling in community of people who will remind us of the gospel again, we will surely forget it. We are the same as the disciples. Jesus knows that the message and its timing matter. Too much information too soon will ruin the mission and the gospel will be lost. He is showing them the healings. He's letting them hear the teachings. He's letting them see his glorified and transfigured face. He's letting them deny and doubt and leave and come back and leave and come back. He's letting them see his body hang on a cross. He's letting them bury their fingers in the wounds of his resurrected hands. And he has to do the same to us. And the beauty is he is patient with our journey. He is anxious to show us again and again and again his love and forgiveness. He knows what we need. He knows when we need it. It's not a secret. 
It's his story, and he knows how and when we should experience our part in it, i.e. experience him. And Jesus knows no demon will ruin the mission. No demon can ruin the mission. The response of the scribes is a, is a doubling down of this exclamation, right? They say this in verse 27. And they were all amazed. This is right after the interaction with the demon. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the new teacher with new authority, and now Jesus' fame is spreading. Is he a prophet? Is he a rabbi? Is he a teacher? Who is this man? To recap, as we've said, demons are still persistent and active today, although their final defeat is promised and is coming. While Jesus did not come to, to do the final destruction of the spiritual, spiritually unclean, the demons, he does have authority over them. Jesus has an important mission. It's the mission of salvation through his death and resurrection. On the cross, we see the final death blow, or the first death blow to Satan, and the death blow to sin and death itself. But there is a second mission. It's one of final victory where Christ returns for his bride, the church, to bring his full justice and full mercy to bear on the earth. And with this return comes what the demons expect, their final destruction. Finally, Jesus continues to wield his authority in some unexpected ways as we wrap up the passage. Uh, let's read in verse 29. It says this, Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately he told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick, or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. How does Jesus continue to wield his authority in the early days of his ministry? Well, he heals the sick. Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus heals her, and in response to healing, she serves her. She, she serves him. What an amazing, simple, beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel, right? We are sick with sin. Our belief in Christ leads to our healing. Our response is to serve him, not out of obligation, not to earn anything, out of devotion and love for the one that healed us. And then the sun sets, and that means Sabbath is ending. The day of rest ends, and the city swells with sick, broken, oppressed people. They swell into the house where Jesus is. They're at the door. The whole city, we're told, is at the door. They just want that slim hope that he might notice them and might heal them. Jesus heals them. He sees them. It's like a celebrity after a concert who's staying and signing every single autograph. Jesus stays. He just loves people. You get, you get the sense that he's just ministering to people and their needs. And all the while, he's telling the demons to keep their mouths shut. Those wicked enemies who want to thwart the plans of God, the only problem is they know their defeat is sure, so they're grasping at anything they can to thwart his plans. But when Jesus says, be quiet, they're quiet. 
The plans cannot be thwarted. Jesus is going to continue his ministry. We're going to see how the secret unfolds. We're going to witness his authority manifest in his teaching, his healing, his victory over sin and death itself. And I want to leave us this morning with us thinking about how God in Christ unveils himself and his plans to his people. What if, what if in 2022 we don't need just a profound new revelation about Jesus? What if that would be too much for us? What if instead what we need is to be spoon-fed a little truth from a loving Father through the loving Son and Spirit? I think I do. I think I, think I need some simple reminders this year. I think I need to remember that God loves me. He came to save me. He came to know me. He hasn't abandoned me. That the tension in my life, whether relational or physical or emotional, whatever I'm experiencing, it's not punishment. It's actually growing me to be a better person, one who is made more in the image of Christ. I think this is in part what Sundays are for, just to get together and remember the good news. Let's remember how Jesus has authority over us and let's reflect on how he wields that authority. He's gentle with us. He's revealed his secrets to us in his word. We don't have to wonder. He's patient with us as we doubt and struggle and fail and stumble. If you're new here, we want to welcome you in. We don't have all the answers. This is not a polished community (laughs) We aren't perfect, but we are perfectly loved. We are accepted in spite of our failings. We've been healed by a loving Savior who wants to heal you. And in our healing, we get up and we serve. We serve one another. We want to serve you. We want to serve our community. So if you're new, we're glad that you're here. This beautiful truth that Christ loves you and has died for you and risen in victory so that you might experience life eternal with him. We all need that again today and tomorrow and Tuesday and every day. Let's accept it and let it settle deep into us this morning and pour out of us this week. Let's pray. Lord, we invite you by your spirit to to teach us, to lead us, to love us, to minister to us to once again let the simple truth of who you are and what you have done unharden our hearts. Let bitterness or anger or frustration or sadness fall away and when we take your command to rejoice always again you say rejoice seriously when we grasp joy in the midst of chaos or suffering or sadness not only because you've said to do it, but because you enable us to do it by the truth of what you've done and who you are and the power of your Holy Spirit within us. Would the joy of what you have done and the love of who you are explode out of us as we serve and love and care for those around us. Lord, thank you for revealing what was a secret before. we never get tired of hearing the truth of what you've done? Will we not go tired of needing it spoon-fed to us?
Lord, I confess that the things of this world are often what I worship. That I, I know what you say in your word. I know how you have saved me. I feel it. And yet that other thing, I fashion into an idol and I bow at it. I confess it, Lord. I repent. I turn from whatever it is, whether it's just peace in relationship or if it's a material possession or if it's the next job or next title or next whatever it is, Lord. I, I turn from it and I, I worship at your feet. I bow and worship you, the only one who can save and sustain and bring joy in life. And I'll have to do the same thing tomorrow to turn from whatever it is and turn back to you, Lord. Thank you that you're patient with me. Would you grow me through it and grow us through it, Lord? We love you. We need you again this morning. And we're grateful that when any would express their need of you, there you are. There you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.